This is Show Up as a Leader, a show from People Forward Network, helping you maximize your positive impact on the world by becoming your best, fully authentic self. All right, folks, you are going to just love this conversation that I had with Tiffany Souter. She is just the epitome of authenticity, of realness, of grace, and just modeling what it means to be a courageously vulnerable leader. She is a keynote speaker. She has her own podcast, Scared Confident, and she is the president and CEO of a company called Element 3. But I'm not going to give you all of her accolades because as you'll hear in the episode, she actually talks about considering changing her bio for her speaking engagements to really look at the scars. And in fact, she says that it's really our scars, not our accolades, that are our most transferable and make us most relatable to others. She talks about her passion of living a life of and, and how the fear journey that she was on brought her to that place. We talk about the importance of failing out loud as a leader and how people really don't want poise and polish and perfection. They really want authenticity. They want realness. And there's just so many good nuggets. I was writing down little quotes and one-liners from this. And wait till you hear her go-to song. I think you're going to want to go take a listen. So enjoy. So Tiffany, when you and I were meeting to prep for this episode, you talked about being excited and called to passionately pursue a life of and. And I would love it if you would share more about that passion. My path to getting to this place where I can articulate to myself and beginning to articulate to the world that my desire is to passionately live a life of and really started for me last year as I began to go through what I'm calling my fear journey. I was coming out of 2020. There was a lot of fear very much in the foreground. I had my fourth daughter at 40 years old. There was a lot of life that was unplanned. And for me in that environment, I just felt super exposed. And so fear really had a hold of my mind and was beginning to get a hold of my ambitions. I could feel that happening. I know that when I can see things, when I can say things, that I at least then can start to understand Like, what is the thing I need to actually deal with? And so I went through this fear journey. And it started with a fear interview where I literally spoke out loud in the third person to my fear. I said out loud what fear says to me. And then I began to have conversations with people that were around topics that were just occupying space in my head, beginning to just take control of my dreams, my ambitions, and how do I push fear to the background and not have it be in the foreground. And what I learned through that process is that my actual desire is to step in to these crazy opportunities that have come into my life. But I had the self-limiting perspective that I already had enough, that saying yes to more things, allowing there to be more ands in my life was going to create a house of cards and everything was going to collapse and I was going to lose everything I'd ever worked for. And so what started out as a journey of like, I want to achieve goals started to turn into this crazy environment where everything that began to come into my life just started to look like risk in a way that it was going to take away everything I'd worked for. And so let me walk through practically what that looks like. We are self, right? And then some of us choose to get into marriage. And so I'm both self and I'm a wife. 
I've also chosen to have kids. So I am self and I'm a wife and I'm a mom and I'm a daughter and I'm a sister and I'm a CEO and I'm a leader at church. Like, do I have time for more ands as life starts to bring more stuff into our journeys and people start to expand our worldview? And so that's really where I started to say my actual desire is to live a life of and. How do I make that true for myself? And what starts to open up in my solving when I say this is the life I choose? Now, what does that mean? And what does that require for me? There's so many things about that that I love. And it makes me think of it's the improv, right? The old improv exercise that that's what improv is. It's yes and versus yeah, but. So I'm curious as I listen to you because I hear a couple things. One, it's the yes and go with it and build upon it. And and that's where the creativity comes. And that's where our whole brain activity comes in. And then there's the very real realities that we can only say yes and to so many things before something's got to give right? A relationship suffers, we suffer. So how do you passionately pursue that life of and, and at the same time, find your wholeness, find your groundedness, keep your sanity, keep your well-being, all of those things? Saying yes to another and cannot be compulsionary. Like it can't be like, in this moment, I've just decided. It does take planning. But what I was finding And I I see this, I think, as you sort of enter this like midlife, I'm in my 40s, people start to get to this place of like the rest of my life is dealing with the decisions I've made up to this point. But there's no more adventure. There's no more new. The rest of life is managing the relationships, the humans, and the stuff that I've accumulated, but there's nothing else. And so I think we start to see options for ourselves. So for example, I have taken on some board roles. So an and that I've added is a board member. That does take capacity from my ability to be the CEO of Element 3. And so I had to put people in place to take parts of my role so that I could step into that new opportunity as a board member. So it does have to be stage-gated. This is not about living a life of reacting to the things that come into your inbox, but it does consider how do you stop and ask yourself, if this is an and I want to add into my life, how would I do it? if I first chose, I had to do it versus saying, I'm going to say no simply because it seems like too much. And we just like shut down. And I think there's so much power in saying, if I chose to say yes, how would I make it work? And my mind starts to open up to a whole different world of possibilities when I think about it that way. I also make sure that for me, the ands that I add do begin to build on one another and they're like really aligned to my core values as a human. I think as you start to get into later stages in life, it's less about simply just learning something new and more about how do I make sure I'm furthering the people and the causes I'm really passionate about? How do I leverage my networks, my relationships, the things I already know how to monetize or make money at? How do I do that so that it's a little easier the next time? So they are connected, but that's really the pieces. It's not compulsive. It's not about adding chaos to your life in a way that you're pulled in a million directions and you're crap at everything. Well, I love that. What it reminds me of is I, th- I think Brene Brown regularly says it's not really a midlife crisis. It's a midlife reevaluation, right? Of starting to really look at things of what matters. And it doesn't mean you have to be in your 40s to be able to do that. I think that, gosh, if people start doing that earlier in their life and start being more intentional, 
with the choices they make and how they show up. They can have, hopefully, many more years of their life that is intentional versus, hey, we fell into this. So it's really getting clear. What I'm hearing for you is it's an intentionality of the and. It's, yes, this matters to me. And so in order for this to happen, either what do I need to say no to or what do I need to create an opportunity for someone else to learn and grow or to delegate or to lift up others? It's that intentionality. I love that word picture, Rosie, of this idea of it is about the more I've gotten clear on who I am, my unique talents and my unique gift to the world, it becomes more clear to discern which ands are right for me. The other thing I don't want people to misinterpret is I ran Element 3 for 17 years as president and CEO, and it took me like 15 years of work to unlock another and. We had to get on stable ground. We had to get to a place where we were an employer of choice. We had to get to a place where we had consecutive years of business plan for performance, a certain level of cash in the bank. Like We had to meet these milestones of business health for me to be able to say the business and its operators are working well enough that I can now take a percentage of my time and add an and. But I had to earn that door to open. And I think we can't fragment our resources and time so much that we move on too quickly. And the things that we've committed to, the people we've committed to, that commitment isn't honored. So let's talk about then speaking of the workplace, because when you and I were meeting to to talk about this episode, you were talking about how the workplace is really such a laboratory, if you will, for personal growth and for people to be on that journey. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that and how you nurture that? I have come to experience that when we decide to engage like fully in our jobs, and all of the learning that it allows and affords, it helps us be better in the relationships that actually matter in our lives. Like, you know, the our families, the people that we love, the communities we live in, the churches that we go to, so that we can practice in this environment of business. Conflict management, the ability to, you know, tell a story, to motivate, to work with people who are different than us. Those are all really common norms in business to learn all of those things. And yet in our personal lives, it can be less common to do that. So I have found all of the things I've learned as a leader have helped me be such a better parent. All of the things that I've learned in sales has helped me be a better listener. All of the things that I've learned in organizational clarity has helped me, our church and some not-for-profits that I serve in and some crisis management that I've been, I can like serve and give to those organizations in a way that is like really informed and mature because I've been able to learn in this environment of business. And I was not an athlete. I think a lot of people who are when they're young or go through college talk about like coaches learn this or competition taught them this, working on a team taught them this. I didn't have that. And so business has been the place where I have been part of a team, where I understand what it means to have these people work together and make something that no one individual could have created. And when we have this scoreboard of the financial performance of a business, it forces iterations because everybody knows if you're winning or losing, it's not like subjective. And when you have clear goals, when you have a team that's aligned culturally, you can learn a lot because it becomes a really safe way to behave and to learn and to iterate together. And so I know for certain I would not be as evolved in a lot of those softer skills in my life without having participated 
in such a full contact way in my professional career over the last almost 20 years. I love that. And I've heard Susan Cain and others say, and I've adopted this in the work that I do, that we have to, first of all, stop calling them soft skills, that they are essential skills or power skills. Being self-aware and emotionally intelligent and knowing how to self-manage and knowing how to listen and knowing how to connect and knowing what empathy is and isn't, all of those things are like essential. They're no longer soft skills. That That's the deal breaker of what makes someone effective, whatever their role is. So I'm curious too, one of the things that I also love about what you're sharing is all of the development work that we do with teams, with individuals, with leaders. We always say this will benefit you as much personally as professionally because the same process to become an extraordinary leader is what we do to become an extraordinary human being, right? They are life skills because we are social beings. And so anytime we're going to be in connection with other human beings, we have to know how to show up as a more evolved version of ourselves. So you've talked a lot about learning this stuff at work. And so not everyone has that opportunity or in order to do that stuff, I mean, let's be honest, if you're going to ask people to be courageously vulnerable, to do the work, right, to become more self-aware and listen more and all of those things you talked about, you have to create a psychologically safe environment for people to do that, to have that living laboratory. So how are you making it safe for people to do that work? at your organization? I think that I have learned to fail out loud and to be as communicative, maybe more so in the times where I've made the wrong call, where we've had some tough times as a business and to like accepting that responsibility as like, this is what I did wrong. This is what I learned. And this is what we'll do differently going forward. So I I think it makes it safer that I've learned there's a lot of power in the organization knowing that you know what went wrong. And as the leader, ultimately the accountability falls on me. I think that's part of it. I also think it's in the questions that we ask as leaders where we don't only ask about where our people are winning, but also where they're learning. Because I want my people to take risks. It's the only way that we continue to grow. And so being as excited about the failures and talking about them, about where are you learning? Where are we growing? Where are we moving forward? And reframing that for them. And so I I meet with kind of our high potential people at Element 3 a couple times a quarter. And I'm intentional about asking like, where are you pushing and where have you failed? Sometimes it's even in their own time management or being able to stay level in an environment of stress. Like some of it's just that kind of stuff. And how, how do we normalize the fact like, yeah, I've totally been there before. That's normal. So that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. But here's some ways I've learned that we can cope and work through that together. So that's another key area. We also like what you teach, Rosie, just do a lot of facilitation of how do you give people conversation models that help them communicate things that are really hard? And how do we work as to be as fluent in that as we are in our ability to celebrate a big deal or a big milestone. And that stuff can be easy for companies to do. But how do we start try to be as fluent in the tough stuff so that we can do that really gracefully as well? I mean, let's be real. We don't really learn when stuff is easy. right? We coast when stuff is easy. We learn what we're made of. We, we learn how to be better. We learn how to grow when we fall down. But it's painful. So I, I, I love that you're modeling that. And I love that you're creating a space for that because I don't think we do that enough. We celebrate the wins. I worked for a sales organization that they used to 
mimic that Saturday Night Live skit, I need more cowbell. And when a sale went through, they'd be like, more cowbell. And it was great. They were always celebrating the wins, which that's lovely. But then when someone got close, like they put in a lot of effort, but it didn't go like, there's a lot of good that went in that, or maybe the teamwork or the collaboration, or we learned a ton. And so I think be mindful of what do we actually recognize? Are we also recognizing effort? Are we recognizing learning and growth through the miss-ups? Like not just celebrating the things that go well, because I think that can be deflating. One really practical thing that I do, and I run the sales and marketing team at Element 3, and every month we have a document that's been going for probably three or four years at this point. Every month, every person on the team has to do at least three wins and at least three lessons learned, and then we just go through them as a team. Again, it normalizes the fact that we're all pushing the boundaries on some things, like what you're saying, and having them write them down and then being under the guise of lessons learned and not failures. I just think starts to, I think, slowly reframe it for people. One other thing that came up for me as you were talking, I actually rewrote my bio. I've read it to a couple of audiences and I've even thought about it actually just being the way I'm introduced every single time I speak through the lens of all of my failures instead of it being 40 under 40, blah, 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 facet, like all that kind of stuff because it's our scars and not our accolades that are the most transferable. When people are like, she did this and blah, blah, blah. And everybody literally is like listening to the Charlie Brown sound. Nobody cares except for maybe my mom. <laughs> like no, literally nobody cares. But when I read it through the lens of like lost a client that was 25% of their revenue, had to execute three riffs, go through the list of like these are this is like the shit list of things that happened to me. I am literally the most relatable in that moment to the audience, which is your goal as a speaker is to be relatable. I was like, isn't it peculiar that that fact exists, that we are presented through the lens of our accomplishments, but we are most relatable in our failures, in our scars. And you're just drawing out, there's like paradox that I still haven't totally worked out that's so interesting to me to observe. I love that. Oh my gosh, that totally gets me thinking. You, It is strange. I mean, I'm going to be keynoting a conference later this month and you know, they asked for your bio and I'm like, can you please like print whatever you want, but please don't make me stand there while you read off like the stuff. Like I cringe. It's not that I'm not proud of that stuff, but there's something really weird and cringy. So I think you're on the right track. Makes you feel like a zoo animal or something. I think, I, I don't know. I feel the same way. I'm like so uncomfortable. You don't know where you put your hands. It's so weird. So we have this conference called the Fusion 2.0 Conference. And when in every single session, I have somebody, you know, introduce the speaker, but it's like I pick someone who either personally knows them or I'm like, okay, make a point to go get to know them because no one's reading anyone's bios. It is personal human introduction. And everyone's like, oh, that felt so cool. So speaking of that, I'm a full believer, obviously, that we need to show up as a fully authentic human. As you said, it makes us more relatable. I think it makes it a safe space for others to grow, to be a better version of themselves. So What do you think is one of the most important ways that people can show their human side as a leader? And why do you think that matters? I think there's a couple of things. It it was a journey for me. I think I have a natural state of vulnerability, but I had to get to a place where I was comfortable with that, like actually being that way. I came into leadership really young. I was like 25 years old. And so you have this sense that you need to be like perfect, polished, and prepared for everything. And that starts to accidentally create this like artificial world that like nobody really can sustain, not even you. And um, I had a great coach 
that early on, and you can take this advice too far too, but hang with me. He started to encourage me to go into things unprepared because it was him, his way of helping me discover that I would show up more present if I was unprepared because I could just pay attention to what was happening because I didn't have my preparation to fall back on. And he knew I was life prepared enough to be able to handle myself and ask good questions and be present. And so it is trading in this like polished, poised and perfect. Instead of that, you are actually present. And I think that's what vulnerability is. It's the ability to be truly agendaless in the way that you're engaging with someone and just wanting to authentically connect with where they are. As business leaders, it's our job to help our people get to a defined endpoint, right? To perform in a job, to grow as people. And so we do have to have an agenda in the sense of their betterment that sometimes they're not in a space to be able to hear our role encouragement for them. Like, you know, I need you to be a better strategist. I need to think about it because they're in a space where they need to be met as a person because there's some things that happen. And so we have to be present to be able to really understand where our starting point is in that moment, in that day with that individual. And so I think that's a piece of it, learning how as a leader to be less tight and constrained and to be really present for your people. I think trust that helps them feel like you're really present, want to hear and see them. I think remembering your people, like what they told you before, if they have a surgery coming up or they had a cat that had a big veterinarian appointment or whatever the thing is, I think that helps your people see that you see them as a person and not just a means to an end. And then I think the last piece is just practicing it yourself. And I think we can also be vulnerable, not only in the things that we say about ourselves, but in the questions that we ask other people and what it provokes. Like when you ask people, hey, how's it going? It's a different way than saying like, did anything in the last 24 hours happen that you want to talk about that like might be meaningful? It's like a different way of asking it. Like there's much more intention around that question than, hey, how's it going? I don't actually care. I just want you to say things are fine so I don't have to deal with it. And so I think there's vulnerability even in the questions that we ask and we probe. Tell me more about that or I caught that you were a little bit maybe sad. Can you tell me more? Is there something else? And I think the vulnerability can also come up, not just in revealing our own stuff, but in being present for the deeper questions. Oh, 100%. And this, I work on this a lot with uh, the, the leaders that I coach and the groups that I work with where they're 10 steps ahead, right? They're, it's the listening with the intent to reply versus listening to understand. And when you're listening to reply, you're not present. You're not vulnerable. You're guarded because you're ready to like, I have to be an answer versus, you know what? I can be in this conversation and I don't have to have the answers because to your point, there is tremendous value in being able to ask really good questions and just be in the moment and be in the dialogue. And I also, I, I do think there is something to be said for those questions. I mean, I've stopped asking, how are you doing? Or say, so no, really, like, I know things have been tough lately. How are you handling it? You do it in a way like, no, for real, I'm not going to let you off the hook with a, or when I'm checking in with my team, I'll say, you know, what's something from this past week that you're ex excited about or encouraged by? What's something that you're concerned about or frustrated or worrisome? And if they say nothing, go, there's got to be something like not, nothing's perfect. And, you know, and is there anything I can do to support you? And however much they want to share. But I love that. I think that learning to ask good questions, in my mind, adds so much more value than being a person who thinks you have all the answers. So, so speaking of when you talk about you went on your fear journey, I want to dig into that just a little bit, because one of the things that I'm 
passionate about is normalizing our humanity and normalizing the fact that we do all get in our own way, no matter how much work we've done on ourselves. And so what I know is that we all still tell ourselves stories that keep us safe and small. They just show up in different ways. And so I would love if you would be willing to share for the listeners, what is a self-limiting story that you still tell yourself sometimes and how do you move beyond it when it shows up so that you can still show up as a leader in your life? The self-limiting story for me, I would say usually starts with like the narrative of like, look, I'm just a small town kid. My grandpas were farmers. My dad didn't go to college. And I was a smart fish in a small pond, but I'm always trying to figure out whether or not I can compete in a larger space. And on a bad day, I'm just like a small town kid who grew up on the farm, like who knows how to boil a chicken and fix a pleated pair of pants and like how to make a great lasagna. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all true. I know how to do that. I can sew really well. I'm a great cook. We didn't go to restaurants as kids because there just weren't any. And my parents didn't have a lot of money when I was little. And so we cooked. We stayed home. I didn't grow up around a lot of media. Like we were outside kids. And so on insecure days, it's like, well, those things are like all liabilities. Here I am in marketing, trying to help brands navigate this modern environment of like pop culture and all of these social media channels and all this technical complexity and these big city CEOs, like who am I? And so, yeah, I think that that can sometimes make me feel like my background is a liability. My strategy, I don't know if you're going to ask me about what I do about that, but I I just listened to um, a podcast series called Dolly Parton's America. I don't know if you've listened to it, but it's great. And there's where you look at someone who like grew up in the foothills of Appalachia in a wildly uneducated, unsophisticated, unwealthy part of the world. And she's monetized that for like 60 years. I'm like, she lived in that environment for like 17 years, maybe. And the rest of her life has been Nashville and all of these like opulent environments. But somehow she's still anchored back to what has now been a quite a minority of her life, actually. And that's what she sings about and sells. And so I sometimes look at people like that, such an extreme example where it's like, no, the places we come from is what makes us unique. I am a businesswoman and I'm part homespun. And that is a really unique combination, I think. And so on days where I feel confident in that, that is where I feel like I have a really unique perspective to bring because that's also part of me. I love that. There's a great um, author and speaker, David Rundell, who said he's author of The Freak Factor, and he says, what makes you weird makes you wonderful. And so it's the, do we see our uniqueness as a vulnerability or do we see it as, no, this is what makes me uniquely me. And then this is how I can offer this gift to the world, maybe differently than someone else and might be a better fit for someone else. All right. Are you ready for the quick questions? Yep. Let's do it. Fill in the blank. Living authentically is? Dangerous. Ooh. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? Go anyway. Love it. I figured you were going to say that. (laughs) What's something people would be surprised to know about you? If I could live on licorice, I would. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) What kind of licorice? Twizzlers, the like OG version. (laughs) Makes mouth happy. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) totally. What's your favorite go-to movie? 
Goodwill hunting. How do you like them apples? <laughs> How do you like them apples? I love it. What's your go-to song? Um, I live with a bunch of preteens right now. So there is a song called Fear is a Liar. And that is a really powerful song for me. I'm going to have to see. I'm going to have to look that one up. Fear is a liar. All right. What is something, and I say something lightly, it doesn't have to be a thing. What is something you can't live without? Love. What is something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy? My kids in their PJs. And what are you grateful for right now? Opportunity. So my closing question for you, Tiffany, is if you could challenge leaders everywhere to practice this one behavior that would create more human workplaces and equip everyone to show up as a leader, what would that be? Manage facts and lead people. Love that. Well, Tiffany, I could talk to you forever, but you've given me some really good nuggets. And I'm going to think more about that screw up bio versus the accolade bio. I love that. But thank you for just who you're being in the world, the space you're creating for others and the message you're putting out there. I so appreciate it. Thanks, Rosie. I appreciate talking to you today. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. To learn more, head over to peopleforwardnetwork.com. And of course, hit that follow button.